X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Thursday, July 9th. Have you subscribed to The Local? Today's a good day to do it. Share it with a friend. Give us a five-star review. Pretty, 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 please. Today, back in the day, July 9th, 1850, United States President Zachary Taylor died after eating a bunch of raw fruit, cherries, and iced milk. After attending 4th of July speeches for most of the day, Taylor walked along the Potomac River before returning to the White House. He was hot, he was tired, he drank some iced water and iced milk, and ate a bunch of cherries along the cherry trees and other fruits, and he died from it. Millard Fillmore became the next president. Life might just be a bowl of cherries, but careful with two or three or four or five bowls of cherries all at one time. What's the local angle, by the way? Because summer everywhere east of the Rockies sucks. I thought it was just Washington, D.C., or just Manhattan, or just Boston, or just Durham, or Chicago, or Indianapolis. Nope, everywhere east of the Rockies sucks in the summer. So as we experience our very moderate early summer, remember these days as climate change hits, as your East Coast friends and family call. You know why West Coast summers are so much better? It's actually kind of hard to find on the internet. I found one thing that just said, well, there's less humidity in the West Coast because there's less moisture in the air. Yeah, that was my question, by the way. Here are the reasons as far as I can tell. The first is from Scientific American. It's pretty simple. It's the cooler Pacific Ocean as compared to the warmer Atlantic Ocean. On the East Coast, the wind blows the warmer air from the Atlantic Ocean and the warmer air holds more moisture. The wind over the Pacific Ocean is cooler and it holds less moisture. Another reason. Our warmest days come from airflow from the north or east coming off the very, very dry desert, which filters in drier air versus the ocean air to our west. And that's why the west coast is so much better. Why is this information hard to find? The east coast media bias. And thus, welcome to my summer editorial. Enjoy Portland summers. Don't travel far away during the summer in Portland. Travel far away from Portland, if you can safely, when it's really rainy, sometime between October and March. Oregonians and Portlanders travel within Oregon and keep a safe distance. When we talk about the weather, we like to go deep. Today on The Local, we'll start with your quick six headlines. A continued in-depth look at COVID-19. We have Ben DeJarnett from Bridgeliner with a look at the data tracking and testing capacity and an interview with Dr. Mary King updating us on the path to the ballot for Multnomah County's Universal Preschool Now. They just turned in 30,000 signatures. First up, it is today's quick six. The Phase 2 opening plan is on hold for the metro area. The Tri-County area will not apply to move into Phase 2 reopening on Friday, even though Multnomah County has met the three weeks in Phase 1 threshold. County leaders say the metro area is not ready. They're waiting to see if there is a further uptick in COVID cases after the July 4th holiday. Leaders from all three counties are emphasizing the reopening timeline depends on the public's willingness to embrace social distancing, stay back, to stanch a resurgence of the pandemic. Multnomah County Chair Deborah Kafori, here's the quote. I'm worried folks are a little too focused on getting to the next phase and think everything will be okay then. Until we have a vaccine, everything is not going to be okay. Washington County Commissioner Dick Scouten agreed with Kafori. Right now, and I'm quoting, I just feel like phase two is not going to happen for a while. Considering the enormous problems in places like Phoenix and Houston, where they're making decisions about who gets to live and die, if we can stay in phase one and not have to get back to phase zero, I almost feel like that's a good thing. We're going to have to work really hard to stay in phase one. 
Meanwhile, Clackamas County, they want to decouple from the other counties. They are repeatedly trying to disengage from the Tri-County Alliance imposed by Governor Brown, and they had their Phase 2 application denied back in June. Here are the requirements to move into Phase 2. A county must have a declining COVID hospitalization rate, have a testing rate of 30 tests per 10,000 people, have a minimum of 15 contact traces per 100,000 people, have sufficient health care capacity, have enough quarantining spaces, and have a sufficient supply of personal protective equipment. Once you're in phase two, some social restrictions are loosened. You can have larger gatherings. Bars and restaurants are allowed to stay open until midnight. Pools and spas are allowed to reopen. And bowling and other recreational activities can commence. But everybody be cool for a while. Your daily dose of COVID data. Here's some good news. Oregon's hospitalization rate seems to be falling again. The Oregon Health Authority has been tracking hospitalizations since the start of the pandemic, with the highest number of hospitalizations happening about March 30th, back when we were seeing about 21 Oregonians hospitalized every day. We've had some ups and downs, but this week we've had around seven people per day in Oregon admitted to hospitals with COVID-19. As of Wednesday, there are 191 people in Oregon hospitals with COVID-9, 22 of those in need of ventilators. Washington has 318 hospitalizations and 52 people on ventilators. A bit over 271,000 people have been tested in Oregon. About 4% have come back positive. The positive test rate in Washington is 5.9%. And let's talk about masks, baby. Let's talk about, okay, it's been a week since Oregon's statewide mask mandate has gone into effect. Compliance is somewhat spotty. Complaints have been pouring in from shoppers at grocery stores about stores not enforcing the ordinance. The biggest culprit seems to be Fred Meyer. Managers have allegedly told workers not to bother enforcing the mask mandate. Shoppers and workers alike have noticed. And according to Limit Week, about one dozen complaints have rolled into OSHA every day about people not wearing masks in grocery stores. And OSHA says it is currently investigating claims made against Freddy's and some other stores. In a country where the president has made wearing of a mask a political statement, many companies are electing not to take a stand one way or another. In June, seven workers at Whole Foods in the Pearl staged a walkout, citing the company's unwillingness to support safety precautions. One of the workers remarked that I'm quoting, it falls to the lowest level and worst paid people to be confrontational in enforcing them. It is so tiresome. As Wyden Kennedy says, a mask is just a mask. The shrooms measure, better said the psilocybin measure, has officially been approved for Oregon's November ballot. Proponents say it is not a full legalization, and I'm quoting, it doesn't parallel cannabis. There'll be no dispensaries. Nobody is buying this and taking it home with them. The measure will have a two-year phase-in of a program to license therapists to treat patients with psilocybin. According to disclosure reports with the Secretary of State, backers have spent nearly $1.2 million on their campaign. Just over a million dollars of that came from New Approach PAC, a Washington, D.C. group that has also been engaged in the cannabis legalization campaigns. Shout out to Jeff Mapes for his reporting. Daryl Turner, the head of the Portland Police Association, our police union, held a press conference yesterday. I have no confidence that city council will stand up for all of Portland. I have no confidence that the city will stop the rioting and the looting and protect the safety and livelihood of Portlanders. I have no confidence that the city council will guide the Portland Police Bureau forward in a new era of policing that prioritizes safety, equity, reform, and police funding. I have no confidence that city council respects and supports its rank and file officers to, who work tirelessly to better our community. I have no confidence that city council wants to be part of a solution that closes the divide between police and our communities. If city council won't stand up for Portland, we will. Turner went on to advocate for more funding to the police system, saying that reforms would take more resources. 
And there's the rub. Do you put more money into police services or do you put more money into other services and alternative methods for first response? Meanwhile, two journalists who were arrested on June 30th in North Portland have filed a lawsuit against the city of Portland, the sheriff's office, and state police, alleging their free speech and assembly rights were violated. Corey Elliott and Leslie McClam are independent journalists who have reported for Village Portland. According to the lawsuit, while filming the officers who were standing in the police line, Elliott recognized one of them as John Bartlett. Elliott said, are you Bartlett? I think I recognize you from the other night. It's Officer Bartlett. Oh, my goodness. To be clear, this is just the allegation. Looking surprised, Defendant Bartlett turned to his fellow officer, said something. Within a minute, four officers descended upon Elliott, grabbed his arm, forced him to the ground, dog piling on top of him. End quote. Again, that is according to the lawsuit. And this is where we are, a police force in battle with its citizens and its elected officials. And stay tuned here for what the press does and if they start turning against the protests. TriMet's going to close the steel bridge and the Pittock Mansion and the Oregon Historical Museum are going to reopen. Transportation officials announced on Wednesday that the max lines on the steel bridge are due for some major upgrades. The bridge will be closed August 2nd to August 29th. In a statement, TriMet said the month-long project will upgrade the signal system, tracks, switches, and other components on and around the 108-year-old bridge, which will improve reliability, keep trains running on time, reducing disruptions and delays. TriMet will use shuttle buses to take riders across the river, but space will be limited due to social distancing. Transportation officials say this is the largest capital improvement project TriMet has ever planned. And when we talk about traffic, we talk about it structurally. And the Pittock Mansion opens today for limited hours. Guests need to purchase tickets online for specific times, kind of like you have to do with the zoo. The mansion will be open Thursdays through Mondays, sort of like a four-day weekend. And the Oregon Historical Museum will open its doors on Saturday, July 11th, although its research library will stay closed due to renovations. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. If you have story ideas, you have shouts out, go ahead and email us at thelocal at xray.fm. X-Ray. Each day on The Local, we share a daily dose of data. Here is Ben DeJarnett of Bridgeliner to help make sense of COVID-19 data and testing capacity. Good morning, Ben. Hey, good morning, Emily. Glad to have you back. So we've got some more coronavirus data to talk about. The latest OHA weekly testing summary has some alarming news about potential testing supply shortages. What are some of your key takeaways from this latest report? Yeah, I mean, it, it reflects what we're seeing around the country, which is that as we see these outbreaks in Florida and Texas and Arizona get worse, there's more and more demand for testing. And what this report showed is that that's starting to have a kind of a trickle down effect to the rest of the country, where states like Oregon, where the uh, the outbreak isn't quite as severe yet, um, are anticipating shortages in testing supplies um, that will will reduce our testing capacity um, over the next six to eight weeks is what the report uh, this week um, suggested. So, you know, to kind of back up and give the big picture, you know, I think most of your listeners probably know Oregon started off uh, really poorly with testing. We were one of the um, sort of worst states in the early months in, in the number of tests per day uh, that, that were happening and being processed. Um, we've really caught up over the last six weeks and the state's now now reporting, I think about 33,000 tests um, a week, um, uh, or even slightly more than that, which which is a good, good level, I think puts us sort of above the national average. Um, you know, the, the challenge, and we started to talk about this last week, you know, the, 
my my I complaint about how it's been covered and and the way the numbers have often reported has been that that testing isn't that context isn't provided. So you know, last week I mentioned that you know as as we were hearing about record record case counts, um, news organizations, even public health officials weren't mentioning that uh, testing was also hitting record levels, and so. You know, I, it was slightly overstating um, kind of the the degree of growth in 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 actual cases. It was partly about testing, partly about infection rate. Um, so I think I said it was we're kind of ringing the the five alarm fire when maybe it was a two or three alarm fire. Mm-hmm. I think the risk now is that the opposite happens. So if we see testing uh, level off or go down, um, there's a decent chance that we could see those uh, number of cases per day level off or go down slightly, um, even if infection rates are going up. Um, Mm -hmm. We're just not testing enough people to to see those infections and to report them. So, um, and because people have been kind of conditioned to watch that that daily number, right? 200, 300, if we're not setting records every day, it could sort of signal to the public, okay, we've kind of got this under control. so I think it's even more important now to be focusing on that level of testing. And if we do see the number of tests per day going down dramatically, we need to provide that context and really point to the number that that I think most public health officials have you know, decided is the, the key metric, which is the percent of tests per day coming back positive. And mm. we've seen that going up steadily in Oregon over the last few weeks. It's now um, inching above five, six percent, and that's about as high as we've seen it. Um, since the very early days of, of the um, of the outbreak in, in Oregon. Still not as high as the national average, but we're, we're getting a lot closer. And so do we have an insight as to why there is going to be a testing shortage? I know, you know there had been some early conversation and there weren't enough swabs or, you know, there, there have been some, some clarity on why there are shortages. Do we know why there will be shortages now? Yeah, I mean, it, it all comes back to the Trump administration's decision not to authorize the Defense Production Act and to coordinate um, the coronavirus response on a net, on a national level. I mean, they, they could have months ago um, taken steps to make sure that we had adequate testing supplies for the entire country and coordinated that response nationally so that states weren't competing with each other to get swabs and mm. there was plenty for, for everyone, right? Um, instead, you know, Trump's made his position very clear and, and Republican officials um, at state levels and local levels are, are starting to sing the same tune, which is, you know, stop. We don't want to test people, right? Because when we test people, we find more cases and, and that's bad, um, presumably for, for his reelection or at least in his own mind. So, you know, we've got this, you know, this real problem now where, where states are going to be competing with each other. And if, if the outbreaks continue to get worse um, through the summer and into the fall, you know, that competition is going to be even stiffer, and and I think we're gonna very quickly get to a place if we're not there already, where kind of this strategy of testing and contact tracing, testing people, finding who that out who's infected, find out who they may have exposed, isolate those people. You know that that becomes just impractical because we're not we don't have the testing supplies to 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 find all those cases, and then we don't the outbreak will get so big that we. It would, be impossible to kind of contact trace for thousands of people potentially getting the virus every day. So, um, you know, at that point, it's all about 
wearing masks and doing our best to stay home again and it, you know not not where we want to be but um it's getting harder and harder to see another uh kind of path forward that is helpful as you look at the next week what are you what will you all be covering at bridgeliner yeah we'll continuing to um to cover the numbers and the data i think a big question that's obviously getting a lot of attention right now is um what to do with schools in the fall and Unfortunately, this is another issue that Trump has waded into and is kind of politicized in a way that um, isn't ideal, I think. And you're seeing a lot of people kind of retreat to their partisan corners and try to be as far away from Trump or, or rush into his camp. Um, uh, but, you know, we have to make a decision here in Oregon. And it's ultimately not Trump or the Department of Ed that's going to decide if we reopen schools and how. It's uh, it's going to be the, the state, and the state has kind of left it to districts to decide if they're going to um, you know, fully reopen, partially, uh, to, to kind of develop plans that meet some state guidelines. So um, I think over the next month, as we get closer to, to schools reopening, and or at least the date when they would be reopening, um, uh, that's something we're going to be following closely. Got it. Ben, where can folks find your work? Yeah, bridgeliner.com. You can get subscribed to the uh, email newsletter. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Emily. That's Ben DeJarnett with Bridgeliner. Bridgeliner is an email newsletter all about Portland, delivered fresh into your inbox. You can read it now at bridgeliner.com. That's also where you can sign up to get the newsletter in your inbox. Next up, Dr. Mary King is back with an update on Universal Preschool Now. Did the signatures come in? Here is Dr. Mary King with more. Dr. Mary King is a professor of economics emerita and the former president of the full-time faculty union at Portland State University. She is here now with an update on the Universal Preschool Now initiative. Welcome back, Dr. King. Hi, thank you. Good morning. Good morning. So last time you joined us, the campaign was focused on gathering enough signatures to get on the ballot. That deadline has now passed. What's the update on your signature gathering efforts? Oh my gosh, you can't believe it. We turned in an estimated 32,356 signatures in a pandemic. And uh, what we need out of that is for about 22,500 to be valid. So we have very high hopes. We'll have a high validity ratio. We have so many volunteers collecting that we you know, fingers crossed, should be in good shape to be on the ballot in November. So you said it, you've done this amidst a global pandemic and also a later start than maybe some of the other ballot initiatives. How did you get it done? It's just been a remarkable groundswell upsurge of a volunteer effort. So many people connect with this issue. Mm. It's amazing and wanted to work on it even in a pandemic. So we had lots of people gathering small numbers of signatures just from friends and family. We had over 600 people ended up circulating petitions, over 2,000 people sending in single signature petitions, mm. and other uh, people who felt themselves to be low risk, you know, out in masks with hand sanitizers, and a lot of people doing the kind of thing where they were had a table at the end of their driveway if they had a fair amount of foot traffic and sitting on their front steps and watching their kids in the front yard 
and speaking with passers-by who signed. Wow. So this also speaks to the coalition that you've built around this particular initiative. Who are some of those members that have helped you get farther out into communities and therefore have this successful signature gathering initiative? Well, there have been so many, but a really standout group member of the coalition in these terms has been the Portland Public School teachers Mm. who are so aware of the big difference that preschool makes and want to have it for every child. And they stepped up like crazy. They text bank, they phone bank, they mobilize their members and spread out around the county. And we were joined as well by teachers in David Douglas and Reynolds and in Park Rose. And teachers are based in the community and totally persuaded. That's great. Is there anyone that's in opposition to this initiative? Well, it looks, I think, like the Portland Business Alliance is in opposition. They have uh, appeared to fund legal challenges, which, as you mentioned, really slowed us down and cut into the amount of time that we had to gather signatures. Those, mm. The problem is, you know, uh, our system allows legal challenges, but there's no penalty for bringing ones that turn out to be baseless and they cost us a couple of months at least mm-hmm. with challenges then were almost entirely dismissed. And so for, for those listeners who haven't been following this closely, what is their legal challenge? Well, they've been ended, but they brought a constitutional challenge that um, some of the issues you think you cannot be seriously making this argument. Things like, well, you can't call it universal preschool, even though that is the term everybody uses to talk about it in academic research or policy circles. That's what it's called. I said, but no, that's political language, and it's loaded. So it's like having a slogan like right to work or something, you know. It appeared to be mostly driven by an effort to slow us down and prevent us from gathering signatures. Mm. Now, obviously, your next steps, I hope, are are celebrating this momentous uh, effort and waiting for the results from the signature accounts. But what do the next few months look like for the campaign? Where will you be focusing your attention and energy? Well, there are several things we need to be doing, although this has been such a big collective effort by so many volunteers that we have to take a breath and really refine our strategy because it was not at all clear we were going to be able to do it. But it really surpassed everybody's expectations. And the next steps will be reaching out to, you know, all the people who helped us collect those signatures in order to continue to reach out and expand and educate people and plug in for aiming toward getting out the vote and building an even better base will be, um, I think that's probably the the biggest focus right there, getting our message out to more people and expanding our reach. So this, you are one of two preschool-focused initiatives. Is it possible that both will be on the ballot in November? That's a possibility, and I don't think it's a possibility that anyone is hopeful will happen. Mm. I think 
uh, a lot of us are hoping that we can come together to put the single strongest possible ballot measure on and to work together. We have a lot of shared values and goals, Mm -hmm. and that's where I'm hopeful we'll end up. And what are the marked differences between your effort, Universal Preschool Now versus Preschool for All, which is the effort that is being led by Jessica Vega-Peterson? Well, it's we can't say definitively because they are still in planning and development, mm-hmm. whereas we you know, needed to put our ballot measure into language in order to gather signatures. They don't have to go through the signature gathering process. They can refer it to the ballot with the vote of the county commissioners. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's sort of a funny circumstance. Personally, I am participating in both groups. Mm-hmm. And the way that I tell people about it is I have a foot in one campaign and the rest of my body in the other. But both groups want uh, have a huge agreement on what kind of a program is needed But the big difference is, I think the single biggest difference is whether or not we truly commit to raising the money to create a universal preschool program available to every family in the county who wants it for two years. You know, and the ideas of high quality and all the other attributes are things we agree on. Mm -hmm. But the so far the funding mechanisms that they have been thinking about would pay to cover about a third to a half of the kids and with the hope of them later building and expanding into a universal program. So that's that's by far the largest difference between us. And we know that uh, certainly the early childhood people are quick to tell you that universal programs have the strongest outcomes for everybody. They do the most to reduce opportunity gaps for black and brown kids and for kids from low-income households. They receive the most political support and therefore get the most sustainable funding. They build community and are, you know, highly accountable to the public, whereas Smaller programs that are more targeted uh, tend to be underfunded. And if you look, the big example of that is Head Start, which is a very popular and well-respected program at one level, but it's aimed only at families below the federal poverty line, which is quite low. That's incomes for a family of four before taxes of something like 25000 a year. So. A lot of people are struggling who are not under the federal poverty line, but even of kids and families under the federal poverty line eligible for Head Start, we only serve 30% in Multnomah County because we don't fund it. And Head Start's been going for 55 years. Mm. So those are the reasons that we think it's so important to have a universal program and to take that on now. What personally drew you to this effort? Well, I'm an economist, and, you know, a lot of people are drawn to economics because they want to do something about poverty and economic inequality, and that's true for me. And Mm -hmm. the thing about uh, 
policy like universal preschool is it hits on so many elements. It uh, reduces poverty. It improves life chances for the kids who participate, for their parents who can work more and get more training and then better support the family and kids go on to earn more, go to college more, graduate high school more, all those things. It reduces inequality because of that, so it's raising incomes at the bottom, and then it also uh, markedly is a strong program for racial justice because black and brown kids arrive in kindergarten with having had much less ability to go to a strong preschool program, and it's so important what you, I mean, it turns out to be that that transition coming into kindergarten is just critically important for your success through the rest of your K through 12 career. So kids who come in with the advantage of the gains they make in social and emotional development, particularly, it's not about academics, it's really about social and emotional development. Mm -hmm. And then they're able to thrive in the kindergarten, first and second grade classroom. So it's the to be able to provide that for kids who don't have it now means that it's a strong um, policy for racial justice. It's a strong policy for gender justice as well because uh, we've included elements for raising the wages in preschool and childcare, which are very close to the minimum wage right now. People cannot support their families. They, my own sister, loved preschool, got a degree in uh, early childhood education, and like practically everyone else who does, left the field before she was in her mid-20s because you can't support a family and it's hard to support yourself, especially in a place like Multnomah County with high housing costs. So they're almost entirely women, and it's women whose um, ability to work and stay out of poverty themselves is most hampered by lack of access to affordable preschool. And it's economic justice because these are these things all fall along economic lines and. As somebody in our campaign said, you know, it's so felt by parents, the difficulty of paying for and finding really good care and preschool for their kids and to have it publicly provided, as is the case in a lot of uh, other places. As she put it in a meeting last night, she said, that's a $10,000 raise for every family of a preschooler right there. Mm. I think that is true. Dr. King, how can listeners support this work? Oh, I'm so glad you asked <laughs> I often forget to mention <laughs> but we really, really uh, we're a people-powered organization and people-powered funded and we would love your participation. I, uh, I am you know, speaking for it, but we have just so many volunteers and jobs for volunteers. We really need to expand that effort. If people would go to our website, the website is upnow2020.org. So it's upnow2020.org. And there you can 
learn more about the program. You can uh, put in your name and contact info and get on our mailing list. We'll be contacting you about parent groups and provider groups and other ways to engage. And here's a really fun thing you can do. A lot of businesses participated, small local businesses especially, with, and I just forgot to mention that, how did we do it, and supported um, a Saturday of signature drives, many of them giving part of their revenues, and uh, we'd love to have you. We'd love to have you. This is absolutely a grassroots community effort, and so many people are powerfully contributing whose work is never seen, you know, we're doing data entry and we're mailing things and there's just so much work to do. Excellent. Dr. King, thank you so much for joining us this morning and giving us the update. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. Thanks to Ben and Dr. King for joining The Local. Kind of cool to be called Dr. King. I hope that's not sacrilegious. Thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown at about 30 minutes. Thank you for subscribing and giving a five-star review. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.